Welcome to Leading the Next Generation with Tim Elmore. I am your co-host, Andrew McPeak, and our mission here at Growing Leaders is to empower the emerging generations with skills to lead in real life. And Tim, today we're talking about an important topic. We know of it as empathy, but we want to dig into sort of the human psychology around empathy, which I think would be really interesting. Yeah. Well, we hear that word, at least when I hear that word, it's easy to think it's merely an emotion, a feeling, and it's a soft feeling. Yeah. But we want to share today specific ideas that will help put it to work. I love that. And I'm guessing you, listener, might need to put empathy to work a little bit better, but certainly the students that we lead every day, we've got to help them do better than our generation has yeah. uh, so far. So, Well, I thought a really interesting way to start would be to talk about a study that happened a long time ago yeah. that I think reveals the reality that empathy is not quite as, it's not an open and shut case. It's yes. a little more complex than we often think it of. It really is. So over the years, you and I have both gotten to know people who have either studied or graduated from Ivy League schools like mm-hmm. Harvard, Yale, and Princeton. Bunch of smart people. Yeah, yeah. And we look at them from a distance. Yeah. Uh, but um, I've had friends that have gone to Princeton University to study a number of different subjects. But um, each one I've talked to has said, Did you hear about the Princeton study from 1973? I mean, it's a legendary study. So listeners, if you didn't hear about this, you'll thoroughly enjoy it. It's so telling. But in 1973, research was done with graduate students at Princeton Seminary. Okay, seminary. So these are students who are studying theology and planning probably to go into vocational ministry. All right? But these are 23 to 26-year-old, maybe even 30-year-old young adults So they divided these students, this research group, into three different uh, clusters. And the first question they were were asked is, did you enter or do you want to enter the ministry for innate reasons, meaning I care about people, or for uh, what they might call circumstantial reasons? My father was a minister, okay? Okay. Uh, So they divided that group up there. And now they had three, three groups, actually, that were formed, and they were told the uh, story of the Good Samaritan. It's a, it's a story most people know, even if they're not religious people. Yeah. The Good Samaritan, okay? And then after they were recounted the story from the Gospel of Luke, these seminary students were sent to another building across the way, a chapel, to teach a Bible study on the Good Samaritan, okay? okay. So they study it. They're going to go now teach it. What the, what the, <laughs> I, I laugh when I think about this, but what the seminarians did not know was there was an actor positioned on the sidewalk, on the walkway over to the chapel where they were going to teach, who was made to look wounded. So he was hurting, he was wounded, lying on the sidewalk. And they were going to see what seminarians were going to actually stop and help the person before they go talk about, you know, helping people. Yeah. So you can see where this is going. Yeah. So here's the caveat that I think makes it interesting. All three groups were told they had a different time period to get over to the chapel by. Some, it was a very urgent, you better hurry, or you're going to be late, Mm. or you've got a little bit of time, or you've got lots of time. Well, you can imagine uh, people in all three groups failed to stop to help the person. They were thinking only about their goal, not helping someone in need. That's a lesson in itself in another podcast for another time. Yeah, it is. But predictably, the people that were told to hurry up and get over there fast were most apt to pass over the the wounded man on the Mm. sidewalk, and they never helped him, which was not just a picture of, man, you lack compassion. It's, man, you have too little time. You better slow your pace down 
or you're going to miss opportunities in life. And that's where we live most of our life. It's so fascinating because what it is, is it's a conflict of needs, right? Yeah. Uh, as I'm walking by, I see that person in need on the sidewalk, but my brain tells me there's an even bigger need to yes. get on time to the place yeah. where I'm going. And this is where it breaks down. Like, uh, would those people have stopped if they just had nothing else to do? Perhaps. Yeah. Who knows, yeah. right? Um, but I think the the question in, in this, and even when we talk about empathy in total, it's asking the question of uh, what are the different weights that I have in my life that are pulling me in different directions, and how might that affect the way I react and respond to given situations? That's exactly right. So the looming takeaway from this is, wasn't it ironic that people who were going over to do a study, a discussion on helping others and having compassion, Mm -hmm. they missed the very opportunity they had to do it themselves? So this illustrates a psychological phenomenon that we know today, Andrew, as psychic numbing. Mm. Psychic numbing. We've all heard the word numb. I feel numb to something. Psychic numbing is the phenomenon where we become numb to the needs around us due to the lifestyles we live today. And those lifestyles can be described with three phrases. We have too little time. All of us feel that. Yep. Too much exposure to a need. In other words, I see a hurting person, but I see a million hurting people. Yeah. And then finally, too overwhelmed. I'm already too overwhelmed with so many things on my to-do list today. We were just talking just before this recording about how the first people we heard that caught the COVID infection, we felt horrible about. Yeah. But about 200, 400,000 people, went, ah, now the person, it's not over yet. Yeah. And we didn't feel what we felt at first. Yeah, it's so totally true, right? As long as it's one guy in a hospital that's yeah. dealing with COVID back in March of 2020, mm-hmm. we want to all pay attention and yes. we know that person's name and, yeah. you know, Tom Hanks got sick, and <laughs> which we know Tom Hanks' name anyways. Yeah. But yeah. You, you get the general idea. It's, mm-hmm. it's when it becomes too much. And what's so fascinating about those phrases to me is, could you find three better phrases, too little time, too much exposure, too overwhelmed? Could you find three better phrases to describe what it's like to live in the 21st century? Yeah, it's so true. Even as a teenager, yeah, you know, it's yeah. just fascinating. In fact, they t- students are kids who've been exposed to adult uh, issues. Yeah. And uh, so uh, frequently today we feel this overwhelmed feeling that you're talking about. Psychologist Paul Slavic says, and I quote him now, Indifference sets in when we're confronted with calamity or busyness that feels too big. Mm -hmm. It keeps us from doing something to change the circumstances. So I feel that if I feel a little need, and I think it's doable to actually help, but when I'm just, it's just too big, we actually get paralyzed. Mm -hmm. Not literally, but emotionally paralyzed. And Andrew, what we've got to do is caring teachers, coaches, youth workers, is we've got to get out of this overwhelmed feeling and get into, I got to do something. As well, and do the same thing for our students as yeah, well, right? That's exactly Create right. the opportunity for them to stop seeing it as a, a big problem with overwhelming odds to seeing it as a small problem uh, yeah. that I can actually do something about. I think listeners, every one of you would agree, statistics feel different than people. Mm-hmm. Can I say that again? Statistics feel different than people. If you know that you know, a million people died from COVID. That feels awful, but you go, I don't even know those people. Yeah. But if you say, you know, Paul Smith or John Doe or yeah. Jane Doe, yeah. uh, oh my gosh, that, that's my neighbor. Yeah. So we become numb when we fail to see that statistics are human beings with the tears dried off. That's what Paul Slavic says. St- uh, statistics are human beings with the tears dried off. Mm. So Dr. Slavik is professor of psychology at the University of Oregon. He's made us his whole life and career off of this subject. And I want you to hear something else 
Um, he's the president of Decision Research, and here's what he says. He, he said and acknowledged, I began researching this when our world became aware of the genocide happening in Rwanda in 1994. Yes, so yeah. you were just a kid back then, yeah. I was just a young adult. But we failed to respond to 800,000 murders in about 100 days. Yeah. Uh, we all remember in history class the Rwanda genocide. Eight, it was almost a million people that died, okay? Um, so I wondered why we, stopped, why we stopped to help some people uh, th- who needed it, but not others. Why yeah. did we help the person over here, but not over there? Yeah. It's a great question that Paul had way back in 1994. So the research revealed that the answer surrounds how many people are actually at risk. We believe one life is, ex- is extremely valuable to protect, and we make an emotional connection to the individual in need. But it doesn't scale up. We do so little to come to the aid of thousands at risk. Isn't that intriguing? You would think it'd be proportionally more, not less, but it's actually proportionally less. And this is what I think about if we just apply it to a 15-year-old with a smartphone, right? That device is making that young person aware of everything going on in the world, including all those needs, right? And the more things that that kid gets exposed to, especially in terms Mm -hmm. of problems in the world, you know, terrorist thing happening over here, uh, issue going on in the global economy, whatever it is, all of those things start to sort of pile up, right? And we not, we're not able to see any one yeah. thing because we're seeing everything. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's happening, I think, literally every day. Yeah. So the bottom line, listeners, is simply this. The data reveal that the more people who die from a certain cause, the less we tend to care. Mm-hmm. It's awful. But it's, that's the data. It's, if you look at the numbers, that's, that's what happens. So although we like to think humans are logical creatures... Uh, we don't respond proportionally as the deeds become greater. We are sensitized to risk to, uh, by our feelings, not necessarily our minds, and this is what we want to remedy today. Absolutely. So we're about to dig in, I think, to some very practical things. We're actually going to take some time on each one of these yeah. and really begin to talk about it, because I think that the task in front of us is to say, okay, how do we take some of what we know about uh, empathy and how we typically apply empathy yeah. to the problems that are in front of us, and ask the question of how do we help students overcome this hurdle, which is, yeah. I've got so much going on, how do I care about anything yeah. going on, let alone the person who's standing right in front of me, yeah. right? And I think the way that we do it is to practice some of these principles you're going to talk to yeah. us about today. So uh, if you all, listeners, were to say, Tim and Andrew, I got 15 minutes, talk to me about what I need to know about this to really mobilize my students to, to act, these would be three simple secrets yeah. that have profound meaning. Okay? I love it. Let's do all right, it. So number one, The first thing I would suggest is that you put a single face to a problem. Mm. So remember what we just said about statistics? We're wowed by them, but we're not wooed by them. Ooh, that's tweetable. That is good, right? write that down. I'm going to tweet it right now. Okay, thank you. Um, So Peter Singer illustrates the power of this secret. He invites you to imagine that you're walking by a pond, okay, in a local uh, city, and you see a child drowning in that pond. You want to jump in and save the child's life, but you realize it will ruin your nice suit or the pair of shoes you're wearing. Yeah. Okay? So what do you do? Well, you jump in anyway because you know you can always buy a new set of clothes or a new pair of shoes. However, if you saw a second child drowning in the same pond, you begin to feel demotivated, maybe even a bit overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, I don't know if I can save two. I sure can't save four. So it starts feeling like you can't make a difference. Further... 
If you heard about a starving children in need across the world that you could help with a donation or less than the price of a pair of shoes, you're far less likely to act. So in other words, your donation you were about to make that would make, the li- make a difference in the life of a thousand kids is less than the pair of shoes you just lost in the pond, but you're less likely to do it. It just seems so far away. So there's something about putting a face to a problem. Yeah. Make it real, make it uh, visual, uh, make it human. Uh, that's really what we're talking about. So in other words, what you're saying is the farther away the problem is and the more faces of that problem, yeah. the less likely we are to react, which is something we can learn from in order to help our students. Yeah. If you hear about a thousand people, you can't see their faces. Yeah. Even if you saw a thousand faces, you would go, blah. That's yeah. a blob <laughs> of people. Yes. Yeah. Um, so studies found that the more people heard about larger numbers, this is interesting, Studies found that the more people heard about the larger numbers, their donations dropped in half. Huh. Isn't that strange? Yeah. So we somehow feel less motivated when we believe we can't do it all. Yeah. We've even found that when we raise money in our philanthropic arm at Growing Leaders, when Aaron will talk about a child, you know, in, in seventh grade, blah, 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 blah. I can help that child. Yeah. But if we say we got a half a million, return, oh, I don't know. Yeah, you know? And, and, and this is what I really love about this is what we're not saying is there's a bunch of people, therefore you stop caring, right? <laughs> yeah, that's it's, right. There's yeah. a bunch of people, therefore I feel like what little I can offer yeah. is not going to make a difference. That's right. So yeah. I'm demotivated to work. It's not that I, I stopped caring all of a sudden. It's that I stopped feeling like my caring was going to actually change yeah. anything. Yeah. So a quick case study of what you're saying is this. A photograph of one suffering child can transform public opinion about an issue. Hmm. A photo of two suffering children affects us less. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Just add one. Yeah. Uh, predictably, it's very difficult for humans to connect with the death of more than a quarter of a million people. The toll of COVID-19 in America way back, gosh, when was that? A few months fall? ago, yeah. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. right. So um, Dr. Slavic summarized it this way, and I'm going to quote him again. One life is valuable, but that life loses value perceptually if it's part of a larger tragedy. Mm. Slavic's team asked people to donate to children who were facing starvation. He found that as the number of children in need increased, their propensity to give decreased. People's sense of need to help not, did not grow as the number of victims got larger, but in fact, it got smaller. So when we cannot put a face to a problem, our compulsion drops. It's either stagnant or it declines. It was strongest for very, very small numbers. So the answer real quick, if I can just bottom line this one, Andrew, and then I welcome your comments. Uh, we must do for one what we wish we could do for everyone. Andy, mm. Stanley, my, my dear friend, said, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Don't hide behind, well, we can't do that for everybody, so I can't do anything. That's yep. not true. Yep. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. I love that. Uh, yeah. Would you say uh, if I'm a, a teacher in a classroom and I just sense that my students just don't seem to care to the level that I'd want them to uh, about a, maybe a given issue or yeah. uh, a need that's going on in the world, that one of your suggestions would be find a way to tell one one story of one person, put a face to it yeah. and, and a name to it. Is that a suggestion you would Absolutely. make? Absolutely. Yeah. To prompt our brains, uh, find a photograph of a single individual and I then love talk it. about that. I love it. Uh, and, and suddenly this becomes a real deal. But you're whittling the problem down to a single person. I love it. Okay. That's good. The second secret is simply this. Act immediately to help. Okay. So the more we delay, 
the more we're more apt we're not we're not going to do anything at all. Isn't that true? Yeah. You feel like you ought to lose weight. You feel like you ought to exercise. You feel yep. like it. But the further away from January first yep. you get, oh, it's the really less hard to likely go to the that gym. is to happen. That's right. I'll get it next January, right? Yeah. <laughs> 2020, 2022 is always exactly yeah. yeah yeah somebody just said i hate the year 2021 it sounds like 2021 and we don't like that at all you know? so anyway <laughs> yeah. um thank you for that courteous laugh you're welcome I do appreciate you're welcome. that so um act let's talk about acting immediately for to help uh this false sense of inefficacy can lead us to think that our efforts will be so puny that we're better off doing nothing uh, we don't feel we can really help it won't matter we're emotionally paralyzed. The best way to combat feeling paralyzed is to simply act. Don't think more. I'm not against thinking, but you need to act. Do you remember at our team, our single-day team retreat we did, um, one statement we talked about was, the world is full of two kinds of people, doers and thinkers. Mm-hmm. And the doers need to think more but the thinkers need to do more. Yeah. And both are true, equally true. But far too often, we in America uh, theori- theoreticize and philosophize and, and uh, I should say theorize, but we're so into our heads that we can talk ourselves out of doing something yep. because we're just too intellectual. Mm-hmm. We're, we're too educated for our britches or mm-hmm. whatever my mom would, used to say. But <laughs> it's, it's got to be if I, if I lean in and I know that this would be right to do. I don't have to have a brilliant strategic plan, but starting to act moves everything in the right direction. Absolutely, yeah. It, it's a little bit of a misnomer. As somebody who fits more in that thinking category, I know one of the things I can often do is think, well, I'm going to act once I know that I'm yeah. doing the exact right intervention yes. in the yeah. exact right way at the exact right time. And what I found often is that that actually leads me to never do anything. The better step is to go ahead and take a step, even if you're not exactly sure, right? You don't have to go all all in gung-ho on that one idea. But I think it's just the reality of realizing that the act of doing is going to motivate you to continue to develop your actions and and really find that key solution. That's exactly right. Can I add to that? Uh, We can keep on thinking while we're doing. So I have found better thinking, if that's what we're really after, happens even better when I start acting. Well said. Um, yeah. Somebody taught me years ago, God cannot steer a parked car. Get the car moving <laughs> and you're going to, oh, now you can yeah. steer it in the right direction. So I, I think this research is um, that the moment we start acting is, is going to produce better thinking and better doing. Um, I learned a long time ago that the world is full of these, these people that tend to get paralyzed by thought or they're, they're just... Um, instant actors. But even if we get the actors get criticized, like the doers get criticized, at least they're doing something. It's that mm-hmm. Teddy Roosevelt quote, the critic does not get any credit. You know, yeah. the man in the arena, that's the one that gets the credit. Yep. So um, Andrew, you and I have talked about this for years. It's something called artificial maturity. Mm. And I'll close this one with this, and then we'll do one last okay. big idea. Um, listeners, if you haven't heard of this term, artificial maturity, I did a book on it way back, gosh, seven or eight years ago. But artificial maturity is what our culture has offered to our young, especially. Anybody can be victims of it, but kids that have grown up in our day, they're victims of it. Uh, They are overexposed to information far earlier than they're ready and underexposed to firsthand experiences far later than they're ready. Yeah. So I feel like I know so much, but I've not translated it into life change mm. or action or, you know, doing something about it. I, I simply post a meme yes. or, or post something on Instagram and feel like I've, you know, 
protested for Black Lives Matters or yeah, something like that, yeah. when really I haven't done much at all. Yeah. So um, we're just saying action is powerful, and um, we, we've just got to be people that— um, that are have a bias toward action, knowing that we're going to think along the way. And it might be that of all the things we've talked about, this might be the most countercultural right yeah, now, right? It is because yeah. we typically, in, at least in culture, are satisfied with yeah. the virtual participation. You know, yes. uh, I, yeah. I posted a tweet about that, mm-hmm. therefore I care about that. Yeah. And yeah. I think we let ourselves get away with that. And I think what we need to be doing as leaders of the next generation who are really pushing them is saying, "That's great, but ask the question and right. Yeah. Uh, what could you actually go and do, not just say, right? Uh, What could you go and do, not just think uh, about that issue, and charge them to do it, not only do it, but do it as soon as possible, right? Because the longer you go without actually taking action, the less likely you are to actually do that action. Yeah, we are not listeners against the world of virtual. Yeah. Um, We talk a lot about it, but it's not like it's evil. It's just incomplete, like you just said. That and is the answer. So to tell the truth, we're all susceptible to this artificial maturity because we have a smartphone in our hand. Yep. Consider the virtual world that we live in and that our kids are growing up in. Kids enjoy virtual reality through goggles and screens. They explore virtual relationships via social media. They display virtual progress by winning video games. I'm not mm-hmm. saying that's bad, but it's just it's not a real thing. It's it's a game. Correct. Yeah. Uh, they experience virtual thrills on a roller coaster. Mm-hmm. They make virtual connections on the internet, and they produce virtual results on quizzes and exams. All due respect to teachers, but that's a piece of paper with some letters on it. Yeah. Uh, what if we did something? And so we're lobbying for action and really instant action or quick action yeah. really remedies this empathy problem that we Absolutely. have. Absolutely. And okay. I feel like it's going to get increasingly so as we go on and we continue to live in this virtual overwhelming world uh, as that gets more and more intense. Yep. So the third secret or idea we want to give with you is to imagine that you're the only one. Mm, I love this. Imagine you're the only one. So people tend to become demotivated and unempathetic or less empathetic for a third reason here. When we see others who could solve a problem and we assume they're going to do it. Yep. Yep. So if I know, well, oh, seven other people saw that. So, you know, that woman in the parking lot that lost her groceries or, you know, somebody's going to do it. We, we, it's intuitive and it's subconscious. We don't consciously think I'm disengaging now. We just, oh, so-and-so is going to do it. So mm-hmm. let's look at some research here. This becomes a cop-out, and it's actually called the bystander effect. Hmm. So it was first demonstrated and popularized in the laboratory by social psychologists John Darley and Bob Latane in 1968, following a murder that happened, uh, Kitty Genesive. So Kitty was, um, it was a horrible murder. I believe it was in New York. Hmm. And these researchers launched a series of experiments that demonstrated People are less likely to help a person in need when they know others are present, just like we've said. A crisis situation is staged in their experiments where researchers measure how long it takes for the participants to intervene, if they intervene at all. Mm. These experiments have found that the presence of others actually inhibits helping, often by a very large margin. People tend to think, oh, someone else will do something. Mm. And the fact is, Often there may be others around who help. That's, I love it when I hear on a news story, seven people came in to help this poor person you know, that fell down or whatever. Um, but, but the data show we're less likely to help if we think someone else can do it and this is going to be hard or tiring or whatever. 
So we must use the old adage, if it is to be, it's up to me. Truett Cathy used to say that all the time, the founder of, of Chick-fil-A. If it is to be, it's up to me. This, of course, means we'll run the risk of taking too much control or not seeing how others could step in. And yet this is a far better problem to have and to solve than, than assuming somebody else is going to do it and nobody yep. does. Yep. Action beats regret most of the time. Absolutely. So I saw a cartoon, Andrew, once that kind of said it all. It was a picture of a large crowd of people. It's a single-frame cartoon. Large crowd of people all saying aloud, the bubbles above their head in the cartoon said, they're all saying, what can one person do? Yeah. And yet you're seeing a 1,000 people asking, what can one person do? Mm. And that they all did something. Oh, my gosh, what could a 1,000 people do? I so love that. Yeah. We're lobbying for, for these three ideas, and I just wonder the same thing. May this next generation learn from us how to take action, even when it may feel insignificant. I love that. I love that, because I can tell you the nonprofits and social justice initi- initiatives that are going on in the world, they're probably not dealing with the biggest problem that they're facing is, um, we just have too many volunteers, yeah, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. The problem we're facing is there's not enough people uh, showing up. And I love this question, if we could just challenge our students to say, imagine you're the only one, what would you do? Imagine there wasn't an agency out there, there wasn't a professional out there, there wasn't an adult out there. What would you do if you were truly, truly the only one? And I think if we could begin to help them think that way, they'd address and, and start to think about empathy in a totally different way. Yeah, yeah, so true. Well, um, we talked about uh, closing with a story uh, that I just think is uh, fantastic uh, of a young uh, boy, and you heard this story, I think, a number of years ago, about what it looks like when somebody is just thinking about caring for the person in front of them, and isn't this something that we would want all of our students to do? Absolutely. So this was an elementary school, and this was way back years ago when holiday plays were done. Maybe they're still done to this day. But this was a Christmas play, and this school happened to do the traditional Christmas story of Mary and Joseph going to Bethlehem and trying to find room in the inn. So most people have heard the story, even if you're not a church-going person. Uh, Little Nate was a special needs kid, probably about seven years old, and Nate wanted to be in the play really bad. But the drama teacher knew Nate has no talent. Yeah. You know, not for drama anyway. Yeah. So his mama was trying to help Nate understand, maybe you can't be in it. And, but, but so many others said, oh, you got to find a place, got to find a place. Could it be a tree? You know, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, finally, they said, we think we can find a part where he has a line. But thankfully, it was the innkeeper. And the innkeeper just had one line in the play. One all, line, yeah. All he had to say was, there is no room in the end, be gone. Yeah. Okay? There is no room in the end, be gone. So Nate memorized and memorized <laughs> and memorized. He finally got the line down. And so finally, the big night of the elementary school play is on. Nate takes his place behind the facade of the inn, and yeah. he's standing there waiting to say his line. But um, the drama teacher's right there by, by the curtain, because yeah. she's going to have to prompt him. Maybe he, he gets caught up in the moment. Yeah. Well, the two little kids that played Mary and Joseph walk up to the end. They knock on the door. The door opens. And Mary and Joseph, whoever says the line, says, we need a room tonight. Yeah. I think it was Joseph. My wife is about to have a baby, you know? And Nate didn't say a word. And the audience grows deathly quiet because they know, oh, we know who <laughs> Something's this, happening. We yeah. know this kid. Yeah. We know this kid. He could impromptu do something. He could forget everything. Yeah. The drama teacher's off to the side saying, there's no room in the end. Be gone. There's no room in the end. Be gone. And he's just not saying it. And finally, just before she says the line for him, he says the line. There's no room at the end. 
be gone, but she, he doesn't say it with much, much conviction because he's starting to feel empathy yeah. for these for this Mary and Joseph. <laughs> the teacher wants to explain, it's a play. Yeah, it's yeah. a play. Yeah. So Mary and Joseph start walking away, and, and that's when Nate, according to the drama teacher, ruined the play. Gives himself a few more lines, I think. Yes, he yeah. does. He says, wait a minute, wait a minute. And after a pregnant pause, he says, you can have my room. <laughs> Well, he had no root, but, you know. And, and, of course, the drama teacher thought it ruined the whole play. Every parent of the audience said, that made it. the play. Yeah. That made the play. Yeah. That's what the story was about. And so today, listeners, we're just saying, if empathy is really the deal, and I think it is today, these three ideas, may they help you spark it for the students in front of I you. I love it. Thanks so much, Tim. Well, uh, as always, if you're into, if you really believe what we believe, which is building empathy is such a crucial life skill that's going to help your students now and into the future, may I just suggest you check out Habitudes for Social Emotional Learning. It's a really practical, but also really fun way to uh, teach these kinds of concepts in a very conversational tone. Uh, with the students that you're leading. Uh, so I would just encourage you, head on over to growingleaders.com slash SEL, and you can find out about our Habitudes for Social and Emotional Learning program. You can actually even check it out and try it out for free. We'd love for you to, to go check that out today. Uh, as always, if you would rate this podcast, uh, give us five stars on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. That sort of gets the word out about what, what we're doing here. Uh, if you found it particularly helpful and you thought of someone while you were listening, shoot it on over to them. Share it with a friend. Um, and then if you want to connect with us online. We're at Growing Leaders and at Tim Elmore pretty much everywhere you are. And then finally, if you have ideas for this podcast, we would love to hear them. Shoot us an email. It's podcast at growingleaders.com. Uh, whether you've got an idea for something we should talk about, somebody we should interview, whatever, just shoot us that email. We love getting those. Well, Tim, thank you so much today for challenging us on implementing empathy and doing it in a really practical way. Thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>